let the hogs out. Welcome to Hog Planet, the podcast where we weigh, tag, and grade the various hogs of politics and culture of American life. Uh, I'm Dan Spaventa, joined by uh, Sam over here. Sam, how are you doing? Doing great. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to Hog Planet. Uh, We got a really fun episode for you this week with a a writer and podcaster uh, we're both big fans of. Luke Savage uh, out in Toronto joined us on Hog Planet to talk about uh, someone that I've heard him talk about on his podcast, Michael and Us, before. Uh, someone that Sam and I have, I think we might, we must have brought him up at some point in the past. Uh, we're going to, this is an episode about Jon Stewart, uh, folks. Uh, Sam, why would Hog Planet be talking about Jon Stewart now? I think we landed on the idea that Jon Stewart is a hog in that he has not really changed his worldview since the mid-2000s when he was the most relevant, obviously, as the host of The Daily Show. But um, in the episode we're going into, we're going to talk about his movie that came out recently, which is called Irresistible and stars Steve Carell, among others. And uh, we wanted to just start out with a quick lowdown on what the plot of Irresistible is, because I am doubting that most people have seen this movie because it sucks. No, uh, obviously it was during COVID, but the box office take was $190,557. So it managed to do worse than Rosewater, I think, his previous uh, film endeavor. But I tried to watch Rosewater. It sucked ass. So boring. Also, he has like a, doesn't he have like a Mexican actor play like an Iranian? One movie? of the most recognizable Mexican actors, too, <laughs> playing a Persian man. But, you know, it is what it is. But uh, anyway, just give a quick lowdown on Irresistible, which is a movie that Neither of us have seen, but we we don't fucking need to. We don't need to watch every piece of trash movie that comes out that we want to make fun of. So we absolutely have only listened to like podcast episodes about this and read the Wikipedia. But we realized in our discussion with with Luke that we did not really give a good overview of the plot. To be clear, Luke did watch it. So he and he reviewed it for Jacobin magazine. So you know he's he we we needed to talk to an expert about this who'd actually seen the work yeah we covered our bases but um and the episode is really more about john stewart broadly than just the movie irresistible which is kind of a boring topic in my opinion but uh let's let's get started with the plot on irresistible what what do you think the fans need to know dan well you have steve carell is basically a democrat hillary guy who the movie starts and he's like uh, losing the 2016 election. He's despondent. And then he sees a viral video of a Marine played by Chris Cooper, (laughs) who gives this like epic speech defending undocumented immigrants uh, in his hometown in Wisconsin. Yeah. So then of course this leads our hero Gary to decide that uh, if he can run Hastings as a democratic mayoral candidate in the next election, then maybe he can convince American people in the heartland to vote Democrat in the next presidential election. Um, So he goes out to, I think the town's name is Deer Lake in Wisconsin. And uh, of course some humor results about his, you know, city mouse country mouse uh, shit that goes on. You know, everyone's there is making fun of him for, you know, eating gluten-free food and stuff like that. Like really hacky mid-2000s liberal conservatives sort of stuff. And uh, it goes from there. He meets his daughter. Uh, the, the Marine, whose name is Jack Hastings, initially declines to run. Uh, he says he's more of a conservative. He says he's not interested in politics, but he later, of course, relents so the movie can have a plot. And... Um, it shows him running against, uh, I guess, Gary's nemesis is this lady, Faith Brewster, who uh, wants, to, who is like a very standard kind of like Ann Coulter, uh, foxy Republican stand-in. 
Yeah, she's some sort of operative, just like Gary, but a Republican. I don't know. They had some sort of romance in the movie. Who cares? Uh, <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. It gets to election day. And uh, there's like, on TV, it shows there's like Antifa there and like <laughs> Black Lives Matter and like Proud Boys and like other like fascist groups too. So it's just like this weird, like, why would this all be happening in such a small town? Like, yeah. Very horseshoe theories uh, worldview in this po- in this that like if you're extreme if you're extreme left or extreme right you're fundamentally the same because you're not in the center I I don't know <laughs> I understand that ideology but here we are all right and then just to give you enough context uh, for the episode yeah election day comes uh, no one actually votes and it is uh, it was actually a big prank so that uh, you know. Gary, Steve Carell, uh, and uh, the RNC operative played by Rose Byrne, uh, named Faith, would uh, you know get their rich donors to spend thousands and thousands of dollars into uh, the election, and uh, they get to keep all the money apparently because of super PAC rules or something. And that's <laughs> and that's the movie. Like, oh, they they tricked the city slickers, and no one in the town has any uh, opposing. Like, you know the town was like cohesive enough to coordinate this thing where no one votes. Yeah. I'm imagining this thing like in SpongeBob when Patrick's like, we should push bikini bottom to another part of the sea. Like I imagine this guy did that at some point and just every member of the town was in on the prank and never broke character or something. And of course the, one of the worst parts of the ending is that uh, Gary and Faith and to enter into a sexual relationship afterwards, just like a shitty fictional, what uh, James Carville and Mary Magdalene or whatever. Yeah. And uh, we'll go into, you know, why we think this, this is representative of just, I don't know how, how ultimately John Stewart is, uh, has seen better days as an artist or whatever, you know, in terms of, his ability to make anything close to irrelevant. I mean, this is, this is some real shitty liberal comedy. So yeah, we, we oversimplify the plot, but honestly don't rack your brains over this one. You have enough to understand what we're talking about in the episode. I think we've done our part for covering our bases here. Yeah. So uh, go on Patreon and you'll be able to hear uh, some of the segments we've did, you know, have a little bit of extra interview for you if you sign up on patreon uh so and you get bonus episodes too we're gonna be coming out with more of those uh this summer so yeah sign up on patreon at patreon.com slash hog planet and uh anything else sam no that's it enjoy the interview and this is from a couple weeks ago in case we say anything dated i don't think we do but <laughs> deal with it From Jacobin Magazine and from the podcast Michael and Us, which I'm a huge fan of, uh, we have Luke Savage uh, out in Toronto. Luke, how are you? Good. Uh, what's up, guys? Thanks for having me. You know, I felt like you were the, the person who uh, I felt was essential to try to have on for this episode because when I listened to your podcast, Michael and Us, which the title is a, a joke on Roger and Me, Michael Moore's classic movie, you guys kind of cracked open the cinematic, uh, you know, oeuvre of Michael Moore. And uh, it was a great way to kind of take a look at a guy who kind of shaped my politics and how I think about stuff, but who, um, you know, it might not all have like held up so well. So do you think some of that kind of applies to Jon Stewart as well? When we when we like we, we take a look back at some of his uh, famous hits? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I speaking for myself, I have a, a pretty similar relationship to Jon Stewart that I do to Michael Moore. Um, I think I probably spent a little more time with Michael Moore than than Stewart in kind of the mid 2000s. Although that was uh, mostly because I had kind of patchy cable. I didn't really have uh, like I grew up in the country. So, uh, you know, I didn't get Comedy Central a lot of the time. Um, so uh, Stewart was kind of more like you know, late high school, uh, first year university kind of thing. Um, but definitely a very similar, uh, relationship. Somebody who was, you know, uh, 
pretty formative for me. Like I think a lot of kind of, uh, you know, left inclined uh, millennials uh, kind of had a similar experience with uh, both of these guys. And, uh, you know, in the last few years, I think, you know, as, as more and more people of our generation are, uh, you know, have radicalized and have, uh, you know, turned to the socialist left, um, you know, we're, we're kind of reevaluating, uh, you know, the likes of uh, Stuart and, uh, and Michael Moore. And um, I guess where each of them have ended up and how, uh, you know, kind of how laudable uh, that position is, is, uh, is open for, is open for debate. But I would say, um, on the basis of, uh, Stewart's new film, which I saw last week and, uh, reviewed in Jacobin, uh, and did, did a podcast on, um, I mean, his worldview, if that movie's in any indication has not, uh, evolved in really any significant way since kind of 2004. It's really stuck, uh, stuck, uh, you know, back in, in that era. I definitely agree that John Stewart's been this kind of figure that was, I, I will say I was probably the, of this, of this three, I was probably the biggest fan of the daily show, um, back when it was, you know, mid two thousands. And, uh, when it was such a, I don't know, there was, I don't think political comedy was as widespread as it is now. And especially in those early Bush years, it was, he was one of the voices that was, being more critical of things that were going on than what you would find on regular news. And of course he always used the dodge of being a comedian or whatever, but at the same time, I think also it's just, it's my process of growing out of the daily show and growing out of uh, liberalism generally was, is part of just growing up for me when, when the daily show was at its peak in the mid two thousands. I mean, I was like a teenager, so I really had no idea what that, like what it meant really. It just seemed cool and funny and fresh and different, but I don't know. I didn't really have enough of a worldview to evaluate it properly. I think. Yeah. I mean, that's uh that's very much my arc as well. I mean, um, I, I would say, uh, you know, becoming more informed, becoming more experienced and more knowledgeable, you know, which are just things that happen as you get older, uh, you know, mapped perfectly onto kind of growing out of some of the things that, uh, you know, I'd been, uh, I'd been into a, as a teenager and, um, definitely the sort of, uh, daily show liberalism that was really the, as you say, like, the coolest, hippest, most cutting edge thing in like 2005 or, or whatever, um, you know, growing out of that was, uh, you know, was, was a pretty significant part of my trajectory. Um, I mean, watching this, so I take it you guys haven't seen the new Stewart film. No, uh, you know, I saw it was $20, Luke, and I, I couldn't do it. Twenty dollars. Wow. I mean, that's uh, I I don't I I can't. I've already forgotten how it was that I watched it, but I definitely did not pay twenty dollars for it. Perhaps perhaps my co-host uh, paid twenty dollars for it, and we're gonna write it off as a business expense. So it'll be paid for by uh you know Johnny taxpayer up here in uh in Canada. But um, uh yeah. I mean it it is uh it is a very bizarre film, and in my you know review for Jacobin, um. You know, I kind of argued that it hearkened back to the famous moment uh, in 2004. I think, you know, one of the two kind of pillar moments of Stewart's career, which was this crossfire confrontation with Tucker Carlson and also another fellow who's uh, less famous and whose name I can't remember, but who was sort of the 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 ostensible lib on crossfire. His name is Paul Begala. Show some respect. (laughs) That's right. Excuse me. Uh, no disrespect intended to uh, Mr. Paul uh, Begala. But so, you know, you got Crossfire and then later, I think, you know, about I guess six years on from that, you have the rally to restore sanity. And I think those are um, those are two moments which, uh, you know, show uh, what the limits of Stewart's worldview is. I mean, the Crossfire one is striking because it also shows what he was really good at, which was media criticism. Um, you know, I think it's important, uh, you know, even when we're critical of Stewart to recognize that, you know, he really did and does have some, uh, you know, pretty laudable qualities. Um, you know, uh, I didn't, uh, didn't have a chance to mention this, I think in any of my reviews or, or, uh, or podcast appearances, uh, on this, uh, on this film, but, um, you know, I revisited a moment uh, on The Daily Show from, I think, 2007 when Jon Stewart was interviewing Chris Matthews 
um, about a book that he'd written. Um, you know, Chris Matthews, I guess every few years would churn out a book that was basically like um, a sort of beltway guide to social climbing where it was like lessons, uh, you know, lessons for life for the average person from Tip O'Neill. Yeah, Bill Clinton, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And Stewart just rips it apart. And I mean, he's, uh, you know, he, he, it's it's him acting both as a comedian and as a pundit and just kind of uh, holding a mirror to Beltway bullshit and saying, like, you know, I can't believe you actually wrote this. This, this book is just the most hollow kind of garbage there is. Um, only, you know, only he said it funnier than that. Um, and Matthews apparently was pretty... Uh, pretty upset by this interview he uh he looked looked at it uh looked back at it as kind of a black spot in his career um and it, it clearly really got to him yeah so on the crossfire interview uh you know stewart does something similar where he you know he really goes after the sort of culture of the beltway um and the kind of you know media courtiers of the beltway and just says you know uh, what a lot of people are thinking even people that watch these awful cable shows which is uh you know, a lot of people know in their hearts that this whole spectacle that plays out on cable news every day is just utter bullshit. And, um, you know, it's it is divisive and it's kind of about stoking a culture war for its own sake. It's about driving partisanship um, to to drive ratings um, and people rightly uh, really dislike that. But when you. Uh, you know, when you look at the rally to restore sanity, um, you can see what the limits of that um, of that vision really are, because, you know, here was John Stewart, who by that point was, I think, you know, he would have said, I'm just a comedian, but he was one of the most important pundits in America, um, hugely influential person, particularly among, you know, young kind of liberal or, or left inclined people. Um, and this was, you know, during the height of the Tea Party backlash against uh, Obama. The uh, Rally to Restore Sanity, I think, was held just a few days before the 2010 midterms, when, of course, the Republicans uh, took back the House um, and, you know, ended ended the Democratic majority right then and there, um, you know, just two years after Obama had been elected. But, you know, what was this rally? It was a giant kind of rally uh, around the vague idea of people using their indoor voices. It was a rally with no program, no kind of agenda. Um, it was about decrying partisanship uh, from the right, but also from the left. It, there's, you know, if you watch the very earnest speech Stewart gave at the end, you know, he's like he's like attacking like Marxists and stuff like that alongside Tea Party fanatics. Um you know, he's doing a lot of kind of horseshoe theory. Um, and it and, you know, this has always been the limits of his vision is that, uh, you know, it's a politics that is ultimately about kind of tone and process rather than, uh, you know, content or, or substance. And, um, you know, that's something that unfortunately, despite his better qualities, um, you know, he does share with a lot of uh, centrist liberals, even even ones that he uh, took such glee in, in making fun of. When Dan and I were discussing this before we hopped on this call and started recording, um, one of the things we noticed, especially in that Crossfire clip, is that Jon Stewart's main problem seems to be that they disagree. Whereas when I was looking at it, I was thinking, of course, like their rhetoric, like you said, is divisive. But the bigger problem for me with that show is that both of them were just wrong. That was like a bigger issue to me than the fact that they disagreed. If one of them was correct and the other disagreed, then that would be one thing. But neither of them are correct. And it's it's kind of... I don't know. I wonder if Jon Stewart lacks the, I guess, the wherewithal to link. Why is it that left wing media or what was, you know, left or liberal media at that time and conservative media were both so useless? And I think it's because they're both servants of capital and they it's not really in their best interest to have a productive discussion between the two sides. Like you said, it is theater. They are whipping up this kind of like foaming rage. But it's not just because they disagree, which is what the sense I got from what John, uh, Stewart was saying in that clip. Yeah, and I mean, you know, in his uh, in his new film, um, you know, you, you really see. Uh, I mean, the the limits of 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 this kind of you know politics about uh, you know tone uh, couldn't be more clear because the film 
um, you know, is trying to go after, you know, these worthy targets like money and politics and political consultants and things like that. Um, but it ends up sort of suggesting, you know, it's uh, I don't know if we're allowed to do spoilers here, but, um, you know, without I will permit it, I will permit it. You may spoil irresistible on the podcast. You'll you'll allow it. Yeah. Um, I mean, if it's if it's going to cost twenty dollars for people to watch an Amazon Prime (laughs) or something, might as well spoil it. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the film has a a twist that basically implies that uh, uh, the, you know, the small town in Wisconsin, that's the main setting, a uh, town of about 5,000 residents, um, you know, it's, it's, it's mayoral election is, is kind of the, you know, the main, uh, the main event in the film. But turns out the election is fake and the residents of the town have actually kind of staged it to bring in the clowns from Washington, um, a premise that doesn't really work when you think it through. I mean, the idea is that they're somehow the super PAC money and stuff is like going into the local economy, but that doesn't really make sense because that's not how super PACs work. It goes into the pockets of like consultants and, you know, ad men and stuff like that. So that doesn't really work. But putting that aside, you know, the conceit is basically that the, the, the 5,000 members of the town, including the incumbent mayor and the guy running against him, who um, the Steve Carell character is the main character is there to support on behalf of the DNC. Um, the movie implies that, you know, this whole election's fake. So actually the town has no political divisions at all. Uh, it's a completely like harmonious, uh, you know, community that where, you know, the red state, blue state divide, um, you know, sort of liberal conservative schism has just been projected onto it by the national media. And I feel like that is, um, y- you know, that is uh, the let's all get along view taken to its kind of most extreme um because of course i mean you know as we've been saying pundits uh of the you know what passes for the left you know which is basically just sort of msnbc liberalism and you know the right um you know fox news in particular of course they you know they stoke all these divisions and they have these very theatrical confrontations with each other and they make people mad uh, you know they stoke the culture war etc cetera, etc cetera. But if you peeled all that away, you would still have politics. I mean, political uh, at the you know those those um, that exploiting of divisions might be opportunistic, but it's it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be so effective, and it wouldn't drive ratings so much if there weren't political divides to exploit uh, to begin with. Um, and I think that's where uh, you know Stewart's correct and well-meaning impulse to go after the Beltway and the media class really kind of. Um, you know, hits, you know, hits up against the wall of his own, basically, you know, small L liberal view of things, which is that uh, politics kind of the, the most important thing is how things kind of look and sound and, and, you know, the processes behind them, as opposed to, you know, what the what the actual uh, what the actual outcomes are, you know, conflict being something that um, is is basically artificial and is created out of opportunism by uh, you know political and media elites. I think that's very much the thesis of of his new movie, just as it was the thesis of the rally to restore sanity. What was this scene like on election day in the movie? I'm reading from your uh, piece here in Jacobin um, about the irresistible movie. You say on election day we see the likes of Antifa, Black Lives Matter, the coal and gun lobbies, and Make America Great Again heads gather around the outside the local polling stations but zimmer's confused when none of the town's 5000 inhabitants seem to be voting so is the implication that all of these people are staging this like together like all of these like groups it's very hard to know what the film wants us to think <laughs> about this because it has every appearance of being a real election and then moments later we learn that it's not so i think there's only two possible conclusions to draw one is that this is part of the charade like the town is like members of the town are like dressing up to play these roles or uh the implication is that these these groups are part of like the national political cavalcade that's come into the town because part of the outside agitators yeah, there we go. <laughs> i mean yeah I, kind of i mean the the thesis of the uh of the movie is partly that you know and this this part's true you know that uh you know, the hacks in the Beltway only care about small town America when there's an election and they sort of leverage it as cynically as possible. And then they go back to D.C. and they stop caring as soon as they've gotten the votes they want. Um, uh, 
Uh, I mean, which, uh, you know, there's definitely there's definitely something to that. But um, of course, small towns are, are not without uh, political divisions. And, you know, in these protests that have been happening the past few weeks, you know, plenty of them have been in small towns. I mean, the the, the irony is that this movie uh, is so determined. I mean, to the point of fault, it's determined to, uh, you know, it's determined to make fun of the Steve Carell character who is this like who at lampoons is this, you know, out of touch beltway liberal who has like the perfect hack liberal bookshelf. And with, he's what, like, he's like, got, like, they make like gluten jokes and things like that. Yeah. He, he's, you know, he's, 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 he loves his soy lattes and he rides around <laughs> on a private jet and drinks red wine and he listens to NPR. And, um, you know, whereas the locals, you know, they, uh, they're just, you know, simple and honest and they don't have time for the, you know, the, uh, these kind of patrician pretenses and they eat real food that has, you know, uh, gluten in it and all the rest of it. Um, the film really leans really hard into that stuff in a way that is, I mean, it's well-intentioned insofar as it wants to side with the, like the townspeople and it wants to, uh, kind of indicate the, their victims of, um, you know, the out of touch political elites. But when you think about it, this uh, conceit at the end of the movie, which kind of suggests that the town is actually without politics, um, is an example of a pretty patronizing type of stereotype that, you know, a coastal person might have about, you know, the uh, the so-called Rust Belt or Middle America or whatever they would call it, you know, um, that actually... Uh, you know, yeah, politics is something that happens in D.C. and and New York and maybe Los Angeles. And uh, uh, but the the typical American experience is a, is a small town where everybody just knows everyone else's name and kind of gets along. And um, and if it wasn't for Fox News and MSNBC, the whole country would would be like that. I mean, I think that really is the conceit of the movie. And it's a, it's a very silly one. It's supposed to be satire. But like, who who is it even satirizing? Like, other than consultants, like what's what is the it seems like a very disjointed movie from what you're saying. Yeah, it's very disjointed. And it also has kind of multiple layers of irony uh, working uh, sort of on top of each other and almost like canceling each other out. Uh, Like, for example, it has a very confusing sort of uh, like three epilogue ending um, that sort of p- seems to partly be playing out in the Steve Carell character's head. Um, the final message it wants to deliver seems to be about the influence of money. Um, like, we're led to believe that the town has successfully gamed, you know, the super PACs and the campaign finance laws and the Beltway, and it's managed to get enough money for, you know, to build a new hospital or something. Um, but then at the end of the film, there's just like a shot of some money and it says, uh, and, and money lived happily ever after, you know, enjoying its outsized influence in American politics or something. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not, it's not entirely clear, uh, what the film is, is doing. And I, I think I'm increasingly coming around to, um, uh, an idea that uh, Matt Chrisman put forward on an episode of Chapa recently where they're talking about the film, which is that. Um, it's, it's kind of disjointed nature. And the fact also that a lot of the references seem incredibly out of date. You know, a lot of the jokes seem out of date. Uh, the most plausible explanation for this is that, um, this was a script that, you know, Stewart's had lying around for a while and he just kind of happened to, to make it now and kind of awkwardly shoehorned in a bunch of kind of Trump era stuff, um, which, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but it would very much kind of, uh, you know, it's a supposition very much based on, uh, you know, what I've seen in the movie and how kind of weirdly incoherent uh, a lot of it is. Yeah, I've been watching because I irony watch enough things. So I didn't want to dive into irresistible <laughs> and poison my brain with all of that right away. But I may have done something actually worse, which is watching a lot of his interviews that he's given to the press promote, tour, folks. Exactly. To promote irresistible. And um, I think it was uh, the one of the thorough line, one of the through lines through everything that he says in these interviews. Um, specifically, I've, I've watched ones with him on Pod Save America, which is just dreadfully boring. Oof. It's really, really bad. Yeah, the best one was honestly probably him on Rogan. <laughs> but um, but yeah, he also did the Breakfast Club, and you know he's, he's done all the usual press tour. And I 
found I keep finding him talking endlessly about how we got to get money out of politics, but he doesn't he seems to lack an idea of how that would occur. And it seems to me like he assumes that like politics is a business and that money would be involved in it and that it's not like he questions that the core concept of like political corruption or even of you know politics as a business it's almost like he's he wants to find a way to rise above that Uh, he even gave this one he, he gave this one quote where he was saying that uh young people are feeling demoralized by the fact that politics is corrupt but they're 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 taking the wrong conclusion, which is to alienate themselves from that and not to v- and not voting. What they should be doing is trying to take control of that system and make it work for them. But then the whole point of irresistible, it seems to me, is that you like can't get into politics and the politics of business without it corrupting you. So it, it's again just kind of all over the place with what he. I don't, I don't know what he sees as a way out of this issue that he is so passionate about, that being money in politics. Well, the, mo- the movie certainly has no prescriptive side. I mean, it, it's all kind of uh, withering satire of, yeah, money in politics and consultants and the kind of like, you know, silly things they do. But I mean, as the kind of final the final shot, which is this line about, you know, money lived happily ever after, whatever, as that kind of suggests, I mean, there's not really... Uh, it doesn't seem like in the political imagination of the film, there's nothing really um, outside of that. Uh, and I mean, I'm interested to hear this quote from, uh, you know, from his press tour, because, I mean, uh, it seems a little, little unfair to charge young people with being alienated when, I mean, we just had for the second time, like historic youth participation in a campaign that was very interested in getting money out of politics Um you know, I'm Bernie. Bernie Sanders, of course, I'm talking about. Um, it seems a little bit, a uh, little bit off. Luke, I believe on the Joe Rogan show, John Stewart said that Bernie Sanders was there to save capitalism. So, which is true. Great. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's kind. Of, uh, it's the kind of too clever by half kind of thing that uh, that uh, I, I'm pretty exhausted to, to hear uh, to hear about uh, Bernie at this point, but. Um, yeah, I, sh- I guess I should watch that clip in context before I pass too much judgment on it. I did see one clip that was making the rounds from his media tour where he was uh, saying something about how Joe Biden is going to be like a good consoler in chief or something because he's <laughs> oh. known grief. So he'll be a good man at the moment. Uh, I mean, if you want to want to talk about people being alienated from politics, I think look at what the uh, look at what the two options in the uh, U.S. presidential election are about to be. And uh and you know, ask yourself what, what, what that, uh, what the source of that alienation might be. I don't think we have to look too far. Uh, Stewart's. Uh, I, I also think we need to mention like he's not funny anymore. Like I haven't heard him say like a funny thing like on these like press tour videos. The Colbert one that I think went around a couple weeks ago was so painful. The quote is, "I can't figure out why no one has pro offered this before." He's not draining the swamp. He is the swamp. He's Donald Swamp. Old Swampy Don. What do you think? I mean, that is like, uh, that is peak, like, 2016, like, when liberals weren't taking Trump seriously at all because they didn't think he could win. Like, that's like, uh, you know, the the whole Trump thing, you know, make America Trump again or whatever. Yeah, uh, John Oliver, who is uh, who you know was obviously born out of the Daily Show, like so that's many right. others. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that. I mean, that yeah, that's such a that's such a dated uh, that's such a, a dated joke. I mean, it's it might be a little bit reductive, but I think you know between uh, Will, my co-host, and I, um, you know, I think our our consensus is that you know the Daily Show, uh, like so much else about the Bush era, was kind of never as good. Once the Bush era had ended, you know, liberalism is much better at um, or rather the, uh, the, you know, the cultural apparatus of liberalism is much better at uh, kind of going after the right when liberals are out of power than it is kind of, uh, I don't know, furthering any particular agenda or certainly pushing its own leaders, holding its own leaders to account when liberals are in power. So, um you know, so much of that energy from kind of the early 2000s that had, you know, propped up in op- or uh, popped up in opposition to the Iraq war and 
um, you know, in opposition to the Bush administration, the torture programs, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, kind of increasing, uh, the creeping influence of, of evangelical Christianity in American public life, all these things, um, that all just kind of deflated after, you know, after 2008. Uh, it was really, uh, you know, it, it kind of, uh, it, it sort of gave way to playing defense for the Obama administration. And, uh, you know, in the case of things like the rally to restore sanity, um, you know, what had been often pretty funny humor gave way to just this kind of earnest, you know, these earnest pleas for less partisanship and uh, and things like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I do think there's at least some relationship um, to that shift, uh, or between that shift rather, and, and Jon Stewart and The Daily Show being, uh, being a lot less funny than it was at one point. Yeah. And another distinction, I think, be t- uh, another explanation for why that liberal humor dur- during the Bush years was categorically different than liberal humor nowadays under the Trump years is that under the Bush years, it was a lot less common to attack George Bush, especially after 9-11. The, uh, it was a lot less popular to do so. I mean, we all, I'm sure, and everyone here remembers the clip of Michael Moore being booed off the at the Oscars for talking about the Iraq War. Whereas now, making fun of Trump is about the most passe comedic thing you can do. I think it's just a, it's like a a very different climate now than it was in the mid 2000s as well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is almost sort of the only thing that, uh, uh, I mean, it's liberal writers are just, uh, I mean, singularly obsessed with, uh, with, I mean, it's not, it's not an an obsession with uh, Trumpism so much as it is an obsession with the personality of Donald Trump and like the personal, you know, the, his, his own uh, personal lies that he tells, his peculiar, you know, affectations, you know, his, you know, his offensive gestures, all of that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I I suppose Irresistible kind of takes place in the, uh, in the shadow of that. Although weirdly enough, um, it's not just out of sync with kind of where, you know, the left has moved, but I would say it's actually out of sync somewhat with, uh, with that very zeitgeist we just described because, I mean, Trump is, is barely mentioned in the movie. I mean, he's, he's kind of, uh, and he, you know, I don't think he appears on screen at any point. It really is a movie that feels like it's responding to a very, you know, 2007 or even 2004 um, set of concerns. And, um, yeah, I suppose uh, Jon Stewart, like uh, like so much, you know, so many other liberal comedians, has not really figured out how to how to be funny when responding to Trump. Although mercifully, you know, Stewart's Stewart's not on TV anymore and he hasn't really seemed to try. But the whole rest of... uh, you know, the liberal comedic ecosystem from, you know, SNL to John Oliver and stuff has never seemed particularly effective at, at actually making fun of uh, Donald Trump. No, definitely. And also in these in these interviews, he's really down and dour. He's he's giving all of them from like his attic and behind him, there's like a chalkboard that his kids have drawn on. He looks like he's given up. He looks sad. Like and he sounds like he hates the old Daily Show. It's too bad. I mean, um, I, I really do think, uh, you know, if people can find it, that uh, appearance that, that uh, you know, or the, the, the episode of The Daily Show where Jon Stewart made fun of Chris Matthews um, is a really good example of the kind of thing that he, he did really, really well. And I think if only he could pair, um, you know, his well-founded hatred of the media and the political class with some kind of wider political program, um, you know, that would be, uh, that would be great. I mean, I have, uh, you know, we, we got to get Jon Stewart to read Jacobin and, and join the DSA is the, that's the, that's the project folks. Um, yeah, I do agree that we need to get Jon Stewart to join the DSA or, you know, take, I don't know, maybe revisit some, some good old marks or something. Cause he does seem to, he he correctly diagnoses the fact that there is this issue of money in politics that the that people are alienated he he seems to be and he's genuinely upset i think at what he sees in politics these days and i mean how could you not be of course like plenty of people are for many reasons but what he seems to lack or maybe what he seems to reject is a coherent 
theory that attacks what's going wrong with politics and society broadly today. He seems to, it seems like he really doesn't, I mean, you can talk about during his, during the rally to restore sanity, how he went after, you know, the Tea Party almost as much as he went after, or, or he went after the Tea Party almost more than he went after What's it called? Uh, the like leftists. He, he mentioned Stalinists a couple times in his speech at the rally to restore sanity. It seems like he has just sort of roundly rejected Marxism or doesn't want to go that far. And he, but it, it does provide like the Marxism does provide the explanation and the culprit that gives you something to rally around and unite against. And without that, he's just kind of grasping at straws of like, what do I, what has gone wrong? Is it, is it the division? Is it the meat? Like I, he just, he doesn't seem to know. He doesn't have like this really useful unifying theory of what's going wrong. Yeah. And I mean, he's so, um, he seems so uh, turned off by conflict that, I mean, that is for a lot of people, I think that is one of the biggest barriers to developing any kind of left-wing identity is because, you know, one of the, you know, defining features of of left-wing politics is emphasizing the uh you know centrality of conflict and kind of the inevitability of conflict uh between you know particular groups particular interests um and so if you don't like conflict just temperamentally you might not find that very attractive um i mean i do i did i can't remember who it was advanced the theory to me that you know what stewart uh you know was famously pursuing this, uh, you know, this initiative to have uh, to get health care, I think it was for 9-11 first responders, um, something like that. And of course, this was uh, this was opposed and held up by uh, Republicans, I guess, in the in the House. Um, it's been a while since I've looked at the details, but I think that's the that's kind of the broad contours of the story. And someone was putting to me that the uh, you know, one of the reasons why he uh holds partisanship in such kind of contempt is because of that experience you know he 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 concluded like uh god if we can't even do this i mean what uh you know what uh, what hope is there and i feel like that is actually um you know if that's true that is very emblematic experience that is one of the things that drives a lot of sort of liberally inclined people to uh to despair and into a kind of um, you know, conservative realism where they, you know, they do support these politicians like Joe Biden or whatever, because uh, they just conclude that nothing good can ever come from politics. Um, you know, when progress happens, it kind of happens uh, spontaneously or it happens incrementally or it happens in kind of these very, these very small uh, ways that we don't notice uh, as they're occurring. And so any kind of wider project to just make things better as a whole is is doomed to fail. So, you know, so why bother? And that is a uh, it is a rational response to, you know, the American politics um, and, you know, how kind of unresponsive the American political system has been for 20 years, 30 years or more. Um, but it's not a complete it's not a complete response because um, the two options, you know, fortunately are not. Um, you know, it's, you know, the two options are not, uh, red state conservatives and blue state liberals and the, you know, uh, f- mostly bankrupt, uh, political narratives they, they offer us, you know, there, there is a, there is an alternative. And, uh, one of the things that's, uh, you know, been great about the past uh, few years, despite all the obvious disappointments of particularly, you know, pretty big disappointment a few months ago. Um, you know, one of the great things is that people, I think, now do have uh, access, or some people have access to this kind of alternative identity, this alternative way of thinking about the world, um, which was not available, uh, you know, to 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 many people in kind of the early two thousands. You know, say when John Stewart did his his Crossfire interview. You know, uh, John Stewart liberalism, Daily Show liberalism was was the cutting edge um and given its limitations i think we're lucky to have uh have a lot more available to us now yeah and uh, one of the things that he that you that he mentions a lot is like you said partisanship and i did listen to one of his specific interviews where he talked about um how he was when he was trying to get 
the the healthcare for 9/11 first responders and going to Congress and like actually talking to politicians, he was really surprised to find that the Republicans, who are obviously you know big on nationalism, big on the troops and the heroes, and they you know use 9/11 for political capital and, and like historically have and still in a lot of ways do, and he said that they were some of the staunchest opponents to approving you know more health care for firefighters and for for first responders when i and to me i was like i know why they're being hypocritical on this and it also explains why there's so much partisanship that you know it seems like conflict but at the end of the day nothing gets done because none of them neither side really wants to get stuff done because they're all kind of you know it's it's hacky to say but they're all kinds of like servants of capital. I mean it makes sense that the Republicans will say, you know, we want war abroad which costs a ton of money so that we can get, you know, Raytheon and General Dynamics and all this stuff to, you know, do these contracts and you know, turn it into this big military industrial complex thing that creates jobs and all this, you know, financial minded stuff. But then when it comes to the actual treatment of, you know, not even just the 9-11 first responders, also just veterans in general, they seem to not you know, want to spend the money for that. It makes sense because one is the war is geared towards, you know, making money for a lot of people and the um, and t- taking care of people who have been to war is not pro- as profitable. And when Democrats and Republicans fight over things that don't matter, it's because they're not really going after a structural issue in the United States, which is, you know, the 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 rollback of, I guess, social welfare and the supremacy of of capital and, you know, the financialization of every public service possible. It's um, like he he's missing that because he kind of ignores this Marxist analysis. I think it's he's sort of blind to the fact that the divisions are meant to kind of obscure the greater reality that they're all really in agreement about the major things about the role of capital and government and you know all these things that he purports to hate yeah i mean this is the thing about the the too much partisanship narrative and what it misses i mean it's very popular um among i mean you know you you actually i mean you hear both democratic and republican politicians decrying partisanship all the time you know you have um uh, pundits like of the Chris Eliza, you know, that kind of species of pundit. I mean, this is one of their favorite as uh, one of their favorite targets. And I mean, the, the problem is that, as you say, I mean, the two major parties uh, started gr- growing a lot closer together, you know, in the in the early 1980s and have only gl- grown closer and closer together since um, on a whole range of issues. I mean, of course, there are um, there are other issues where there's more distance, but um yeah, I mean, the, the American political system has really converged around, um, you know, around a particular consensus. And so, if anything, uh, you know, there's not uh, there's not enough partisanship. I mean, I don't know how anybody can look at, you know, there's those, you know, those photos of all the ex-presidents together, all the ex-first families together, um, you know, where they're all just getting along and they're all smiling. I don't know how anybody can look at those photos and conclude, you know, anything other than these are people that, you know, basically get along and, you know, may disagree at at the margins, but often have very, uh, you know, very similar beliefs and very similar commitments to things. I mean, if, you know, it's true that on, you know, on cable news and and kind of in this sort of broader partisan ecosystem, you know, officially Democrats always think that Republicans are are the devil um, and, and kind of vice versa. Um, but I mean, if, you know, if, uh, I mean, if, for example, Nancy Pelosi really thinks that about Donald Trump, why does she, you know, why is she helping him, uh, get more money for the military? Why is she helping expand, uh, you know, the surveillance powers of the, uh, you know, of the federal government, things like that. I mean, it's just, there's no, uh, there's no consistency here apart from, uh, the, you know, bipartisan unity of, of, you know, liberal and, and conservative elites. And um, I think that that is a much better and more constructive target than, um, you know, sort of just decrying uh, the decrying the media and implying that uh, the media is the one making everybody angry at each other. Uh, it's just not not accurate. At the end of the day, like less and less people are watching these TV shows every year. Uh, it, it's quite clear, and also I think we have to mention also the the media how they treated Stewart. Um, you look at 
the uh, John Stewart eviscerates headlines that started to appear after his famous interview with uh, Mad Money host Jim Cramer. Um, Luke, what did you make of the whole tendency? And then they did it with like, you know, John Oliver and uh, Samantha B and all these other uh, alumni of the Daily Show where they would say uh, Samantha B has eviscerated Halliburton or something. Right, like, right, what, right. What, 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 what did you make of that tendency? Yeah, I mean, that's part of um, it's part of this, uh, I, I think, sort of core liberal belief that politics is all about uh, kind of logic and argument. And, you know, you win the argument, you you, you win at the politics. I mean, um, uh, you know, people have seen the West Wing. There's that famous scene where, um, you know, President Bartlett uh, confronts this homophobic conservative radio host by... I guess, quoting from memory, you know, because he's really smart, uh, a bunch of passages from the Bible and he sort of owns her with logic. Um, and that, I mean, that is, uh, I think that is a foundational belief of, um, you know, centrist liberals in particular is that, you know, you, you can, if you just expose your opponent's hypocrisy, um, you've won. And the problem with that is it doesn't work when your opponents don't have any shame. <laughs> And especially now, with Trump, it's like it's impossible to do that now, right? I mean, exactly. I mean, so, for example, uh, uh, two or three days maybe before the it might have been longer, but not long before the 2016 election. I remember a fellow from Talking Points Memo tweeting out this story about how Melania Trump had been found to have worked for several weeks. I guess in the 90s, she'd done modeling work in the United States without a without a permit. And he was, you know, tweeting it in this like sort of gotcha way, like surely this will sink Trump because uh, this is so hypocritical. Here's this guy who's blasting undocumented, you know, workers and et cetera, et cetera. So this is going to own them really hard. Um, and of course, you know, of course, no one no one cares. Um, it's just not how it's just not how uh, it's, it's just not how politics, uh, not how politics works. Um, and if anything, the liberal instinct to kind of constantly uh, constantly lean towards these kind of logical owns end up it ends up muddying uh, the waters and confusing what it is that liberals themselves actually believe. I mean, how many times have you heard uh, you know s Democrats say stuff about how like they're actually the party of fiscal responsibility because deficits are lower, there's less national debt or whatever when uh, you know I mean that sort of impulse just ends up uh, you know, even even if you seem to be winning uh, the arguments on cable news or whatever, and you're epically eviscerating people, I mean, once you're once you're having uh, political debates on that terrain, you've kind of already lost the argument because the whole idea of you know fiscal responsibility or whatever is you know it is a kind of a right wing uh, a right wing concept. And so again and again, when I think liberals try to lean into that sort of thing um, with the idea of you know, rhetorically outflanking their opponents, uh, it never works, and it it always uh, it always kind of backfires. And as satisfying as those uh, those kind of owns uh, that you know you can watch in YouTube clips or whatever, as satisfying as those can sometimes be, they're not uh, they're not a substance or a substitute for uh, for politics. Would Would it surprise you to know that uh, Stewart ended his New York Times profile by uh, <laughs> saying this quote? Ignorance is an entirely curable disease. Oh, dear. You just get exhausted listening to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that that speaks to something else, which I think is really, uh, uh, you know, foundational, you know, still to a lot of liberals. You know, it was when I was, when I was a teenager watching The Daily Show and, and still is today, which is the idea that, um, you know, I've actually been doing some writing about this very, uh, this very subject recently, but... I think too often, you know, liberals think that uh, conservatism is just the uh, it's just like an absence of knowledge. It's just the presence of misinformation. And so if you correct the, the misinformation, you're you're extinguishing the flames of conservatism. Um, I was reading recently, not for pleasure, but to review it, a book by uh, 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 David Plouffe, the uh, guy who managed Obama's campaign in 2008. And there's a whole section, it's called The Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. Um, and uh, I mean, I won't go too much into the book, but there's a section where he's giving you instructions for like, here's how uh, 
here's how you can argue with your, you know, Republican, your red state uncle online or, or whatever. And um, th- yeah, the whole thing kind of takes the form of like, uh, he's posted, the red state uncle has posted something factually untrue. So, you know, calmly, you know, put your, put your rage aside um, and, uh, and calmly fact, you know, fact check him and give him multiple sources uh, give him something from a conservative source that shows that the thing is wrong or whatever. And uh, yeah, I mean, this this obsession with fact checking has only grown in the Trump era. Um, you know, I guess there was that thing a few weeks ago where Twitter announced that they were going to put kind of factual uh, like tags on on some of Donald Trump's tweets, because, I mean, obviously Trump does say a lot of stuff that's, you know, he lies a lot. He lies a lot in his tweets. He says a lot that's incredibly misleading, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But, you know, fact-checking has not worked to stop the right um, any more than, you know, epically owning conservative pundits on on cable shows or whatever has stopped the right. Um, There's really is just no substitute. Uh, You know, on... It seems hack, you know, hacky almost to always come back to that to this, but there really is no substitute for you know multiracial working class politics uh, that centers uh, solidarity and uh, you know and that comes with a program that comes with a program to take on political corruption that comes with a program to take on the influence of money in politics uh, that has you know proposes big transformative ideas like uh, Medicare for all. Um, there's, there's no substitute for that. And there's no, uh, there's no kind of, there's no tool in the liberal toolkit, whether it's fact checking or, you know, uh, epically owning, uh, conservative pundits, that's ever going to be a substitute for any of that. Yeah. I, with the fact checking, the thing that always gets me is this idea and you hear it about more things than just, um, than just like liberal conservative politics, or you hear it about different aspects of it. Like, um, I think with, with anti-racism, a lot of times people act like if we just inform the racist whole, you know, white people that there are black doctors or there are, you know, if we show them people in these roles and they will, they will learn that racism is, you know, not correct. But I think that, People need to, when they learn something, they also need to believe it. Because if you just hear something like, you know, let's say you hear Donald Trump say something that's totally incorrect, and then you hear a liberal person fact-checking it, then you may have heard what they said, but it doesn't mean you really took it to heart or that you necessarily believe it. You know, ignorance is is possibly curable because you could tell someone what the truth is conceivably, but willful ignorance is not really curable in just by providing information. You need to provide like a narrative that people can kind of believe like people need to really feel it for themselves to develop the belief that leads to like conviction. But with, with John Stewart it's in, and with this broader realm of people who are just saying stuff to fact check things or to inform people it it kind of misses that aspect i think i think they need to make people actually learn stuff but also believe it and like take it to heart so they can feel it as like a a true conviction definitely and i mean i mean this also this obsession with kind of smarts and intelligence uh completely misses the fact that there are plenty of educated people uh, who have you know prejudiced views and who have completely backward views and all kinds of things, um, you know it's it it's the the liberal kind of fetish fetishization of you know having attended particular colleges or uh, you know having particular professional credentials or whatever is just part and parcel of what um, you know the class character of liberalism has has increasingly become you know since the uh, the nineteen eighties which is um, you know, in- increasingly kind of gilded and driven by, you know, experts and technocrats and just kind of obsessed with, um, you know, bogus ideas of kind of meritocracy and, and uh, you know, social mobility. Um, you know, it's th- this is why liberals tend to emphasize education so much is because they think that, uh, you know, everything, the solution to everything is just people becoming smarter and more uh, more educated, and it's really uh, it's really not that simple. Can we say, Sam, that we have proven that John Stewart is a hog by our definition? 
Well, let's back up and uh, get a little more technical in our definition there. Yeah, I missed the beginning when you guys were defining hogs because my uh, I think I it's funny. We've had this whole conversation and I'm uh, I'm not I'm not don't think I'm clear on what the central conceit of the show is. So define hog uh, for me and for the listeners at home. For sure. Uh, hog culture is the culture of the self-satisfied, oversatiated, delusional and ultimately atavistic humans that you find on the on the right, the left, the center of the political severe, also in mainstream and avant-garde cultural scenes. Uh, basically anywhere hot takes are to be had, there is this class of people who are right because they're right. And there's a whole world of delusion of delusion that they're able to kind of immerse themselves in such that they don't really engage in in real life. <laughs> okay. So I guess by that definition, John Stewart, I think um, by having this kind of worldview that has been, I mean, John Stewart has absolutely had his own worldview kind of validated in many ways in that there are a million people who or a million shows now that do more or less what John Stewart did. I mean, we've got Full Frontal with Samantha B. We've got the uh, you know endless iterations of these of these different shows. A lot of them involve people from the, his own show, like we talked about last week tonight. Jordan Klepper. Um, there was the Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore. But then outside of that, there's also like the Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj, and you know a lot of these differ in their own ways. But it is like this veritable scene that um, is really kind of like all, I don't want to say it's all sprung from from his mold, but he did sort of set the blueprint for this. They kind of did, though, you know, like yeah. like it wasn't really a thing in comedy to do like a serious politics show before The Daily Show, I, I, I think. But what we see now with Jon Stewart doing these like these chaotic attic interviews is just, I don't know, it seems like after decades of having more or less the same ideas about bipartisanship, the role of the media, the uh, corrosive influence of money on politics, you would kind of like be forced to challenge and, and uh, change your worldview. Cause I know that definitely happened to me. I was definitely much more of a bread and butter liberal until I, a couple things happened. I mean, I graduated from college and had to go out into the real world and get a job. And not that that made me more conservative at all. That made me much more radical and much more left wing, definitely. But another thing was definitely the witnessing the end of the Obama years. And of course the rise of Trump and seeing that, yeah, this whole dynamic of like adhering to just to liberalism and trying to win people over to specifically liberalism using fact checking using the the kind of uh the appeal of academia and all of these sorts of things that liberals cling to now turn it seems just so hollow that i was genuinely like no i need to kind of start to reject a lot of these things i need to um i mean and luckily i'm i, I was young at the time i still am relatively young or at least younger than john stewart but uh, and it's it is easier for those of us to you know, if we didn't have much of a coherent worldview beforehand, it's easy to go ahead and adopt kind of a new one or to evolve. But at the end of the day, I'm just sort of like, these things should force you to kind of reevaluate where you're at. But like you're saying with the Irresistible movie being trapped in this kind of 2004, 2007 mindset, and basically what we've seen from him in these interviews, he just won't, that's where the, uh, the self-satisfied nature comes out a little bit, even though he's not satisfied, he is sort of satisfied with his, he's not satisfied with, with society broadly or with politics broadly, but he is kind of satisfied with his idea on why it's wrong, even though he doesn't really seem to know why it's wrong. It's sort of, it's, it's like, that's what makes him a hog to, in my mind or within the conceit of the show, because I'm, I'm at the point with him where I'm like, how are you not like just sort of learning faster at this point? Like it should have all of these experiences you've had with the March to restore sanity or whatever, or the, you know, pleading on at Congress for these for 9-11 first responders like that should have really kind of, I don't know, challenged you and forced you to reevaluate where you're at. And I don't see any of that from his recent output. So the I think the the lingering question behind all this is, uh, can we radicalize John Stewart? Let's make it happen, fam. I don't see why not. Uh, just give him the right books and, uh, you know, make him listen to some of the right podcasts. And uh, it's possible. 
Or maybe we can't. I mean, that's what he's saying to do to the conservatives. I will. I will just. I will just say, uh, John Stewart, if you're listening to this, you're welcome to come on Michael and us anytime to debate uh, the movie Irresistible. I uh, <laughs> do not extend that same invitation to Hog Planet, uh, John. Um, <laughs> all right, I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, Luke Savage, thanks so much for joining us on Hog Planet today. Um, I'll give you this time to uh, plug anything you'd like to plug. Oh, yeah, it's a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, people can find me on Twitter at Luke W. Savage. And, um, yeah, if you like this podcast, you'll uh, probably like Michael and Us, uh, which I do with my friend and co-host, Will Sloan. You can find us uh, at Michael and Us on Twitter, on SoundCloud, Michael and Us, uh, Spotify, iTunes, a podcast app near you, uh, and on Patreon as well, if I didn't say that already. So uh, check us out. And uh, don't forget to check out Luke's writing in Jacobin also. Um, really good review of the new Jon Stewart movie, Irresistible, in there. Um, Sam, uh, what put plugs do we have? Well, we're plugging our own Patreon, patreon.com slash hogplanet, so we can continue to have illustrious guests and pay the business expenses of keeping this little thing afloat. Uh, we're also plugging our our relatively nascent Hog Planet Instagram at Hog Planet Podcast on Instagram. You can follow the show on Twitter at Hog Planet, uh, and you can follow me at Wagstank on Twitter, and you can follow Dan at Speventacular on Twitter and on Instagram. Same handle for both, I believe. Yes, that's right. Um... Yeah. Once again, Luke, uh, you know, thanks so much. You're one of my favorite podcasters. So it's great to get you on my show. Uh, you know, really appreciate it. And uh, how is it in Toronto? Is it is it, you know, the cop stuff? Is it is it getting it has did it get crazy there at all? Oh, there's. Uh, yeah. I mean, there have been protests, uh, you know, most weekends. Um, I mean, things have been pretty locked down uh, until recently. So that's kind of complicating things. And uh, we'll see what happens as uh, as everything opens up. But uh uh yeah it's uh i I probably similar to uh what uh you know what's been going down in some american cities yeah well uh that'll do it for us today this is hog planets